Welcome to the Take 92 Podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I'm your host. And today is our sixth annual wrap-up of the year, the top 10 albums and honorable mentions of 2021. First off, I just want to say thank you guys for supporting an amazing season. We've had some truly bucket list memorable guests this year, and I'm very grateful to continue doing this show. Now let's get in to the best albums of the year. Now, if you're newer to the show, this is just a solo episode. I'm going to go through my personal list. We all have our favorites, but I found this is just the uh, most enjoyable way for me to do it instead of just putting a list on my social media to come and go. Because we are music nerds, that's why we're talking about this stuff, that's why we're listening to a show like this, that's why we're reading the liner notes and the biographies and watching the documentaries and all that good stuff. So yeah, this is where we get into it. I would first like to acknowledge anybody who supported my own releases this year. Uh, started out with my second book, How to Ruin Your Life, The Daily Grind of a DIY Tour. And that book chronicled the touring life from 2011 until present day and all the experiences that I had out there on the road, good and bad, and uh, coincided with my announcement that I am retiring from DIY touring, which is not to say that I'm out of the game forever, but I am done with this uh, throwing myself at this cycle, album tour, album tour, album tour, to go out there and play for 10 people and you know, it just, uh, it wasn't worth it. And so I was blown away by the support for the book. I did the audiobook version as well. And it was my biggest pre-order ever of anything. So very grateful for that. I bundled it with a brand new acoustic record, Stolen Songs 4. And you might be thinking, four, you've done like a shitload of those. But uh, Stolen Songs in the beginning was a multifaceted covers album. So a bunch of different artists that were part of my live set at the time recorded them all, right? And I did a few of those and they were different styles. And then I deviated from that, had a YouTube series called Stolen Songs Sessions. And some of those are still on my band camp, but essentially those are dedicated to one single artist front to back. So this one, I went back to the original format of just picking a bunch of songs, regardless of the artist, that means something to me, just me and my guitar, which I hadn't done since I think 2008. And it felt really, really good to do that. And I'm very happy with the performances. And so appreciate anybody who's checked that out as well. And then the last release of the year was Hands Down, Live at the Wow Hall. Hands Down, of course, being the title track of my 2018 album, Figures of Speech. You know, with everybody not playing shows and, again, my vow to uh, stop the tour grind. You know, people were going, ah, oh, I missed, you know, I wish I got to see you again and whatever. And I thought, well, shit, I actually have a lot of footage up the sleeve. I had planned originally to make a DVD to go with Figures of Speech. I was going to have a, a three-disc release, and that was just too ambitious at the time. So I put in the time this year to edit that. I had my friend Taylor Morden, director of the uh, Ska movie, pick it up, and the last blockbuster documentary that's on Netflix. He helped me do a little bit of uh, post-production 
you know, aspect ratio, color saturation, stuff like that. And uh, it turned out great. And I found tons and tons of audio as well from other shows over the years. And so I have the full show on DVD and CD. And then there's like 10 bonus tracks from the Bears Repeating era where I'm playing those songs for the first time. And I think at the CD release show even and testing out some of the songs that would become famous last words. So pretty cool project. I was really happy with it. I thought quality was amazing. You know, the, the sound turned out great. All of the photographers who volunteered their time to film the show, they all did a great job. Not a super popular item, if I'm honest, but I didn't expect it to be. It's more just, okay, if we're documenting this period, well, here's a glimpse of me while I'm working on this record that wasn't out yet, figures of speech, and playing these songs for the very first time. And so that was me really at my top form in, uh, in rap writing. And it was me taking those to the stage for the first time and experimenting with those. And so I'm really happy just to have that on record. So How to Ruin Your Life, Stolen Songs for and Hands Down. I appreciate anybody who has supported these projects or supported this podcast or supported my other podcast, The Bat Fanatic Podcast, spelled Bat Fan Addict, um, where we talk about Batman comics and films. That has also been just a, a tremendous relief. While everything was locked down, these are the ways that I've got to connect with people, you know, when we're not actually getting out there. So thanks out of the way. We're going to get into some of our honorable mentions. And I have more than 10 this time. I kind of grouped them a little bit differently. So first off, we have some reissues and live releases. And you may be thinking, well, fucking last year, you gave your number one to a live album, Metallica's S&M, and that's true. But I do consider that a different animal since it actually has original composition and it's a totally different thing. So I guess speaking with Metallica, we can start there. They did a 30th anniversary reissue of the Black Album, where it was totally remastered. And when I first put it on, I was like, wow, you would take this album, that's a very bright album, and you would boost the presence on this. I couldn't believe it when I first started listening to it. But then when I cranked it up on a good stereo, I was like, oh my God, the way that it carves out the vocal in some of these songs, especially the mellower songs, actually, like The Unforgiven or Nothing Else Matters. I mean, there's a night and day difference in my mind. And it also gives a little more bottom end punch, too, just to the the kick drum and to, you know, Jason Newstead's bass parts. Um, so it might not be your favorite Metallica album. I know it's a hotly debated one to this day. But for me, it was... Uh, really cool to hear that with uh, fresh ears, kind of like you're listening to it again for the first time and listening to their documentary series they did on the podcast about it, as well as I rewatched the, the classic albums VH1 episode about it. And so, you know, just, just uh, reliving all of that stuff and getting into the mindset and then hearing this new version was uh, really cool for me. Cause again, they're still my favorite band and you know, that was maybe not my go-to record for them, but I still have a deep love and appreciation for it, for 
what they were trying to do in terms of they had pushed it as far as you could possibly push it, you know, arrangement wise, technicality wise with justice and then going, you know what, let's just fucking strip it down. Riffs, grooves, fucking vocal melodies, you know, let it breathe a little bit. So anyway, had to include that because I really enjoyed it. Another one that came out this year, No Use for a Name, Rarities Volume 2. Fat Wreck has put out a couple of these. I think one was all covers, Volume 1, and then this one is all the originals. It's demo versions, basically, of songs we've heard for the most part. But Tony Sly passed away, boy, I think almost 10 years ago now. I, I feel like next year might be the anniversary, if I'm not mistaken, but it was a joy for me to discover his solo acoustic records a few years back. And I feel similarly about being able to dive in and hear these other recordings, knowing that we're never going to hear anything from him or from this band ever again. So not breaking new ground or anything, but it's cool to hear them, like I said about Hands Down, my live record, workshopping these songs before they go and record the final version. So if you're a diehard fan of No Use or Tony Sly, I'd recommend it. You know, if you're a casual fan, you know, maybe you could skip that one, but it definitely meant something to me. Another reissue here, Propagandi dropped Today's Empires, Tomorrow's Ashes, not only remastered, but also remixed by Jason Livermore at The Blasting Room. And if you listen to this show at all, obviously we had Todd from Propagandi on this season. Uh, we've had Jason Livermore from The Blasting Room in the past. He is my favorite engineer. I love what he does. I've had Ryan Green in the past, and he recorded that album and originally you know, did the uh, mix and master on it. So to me, what's cool here is that and I love what Ryan did with the Strung Out reissues a few years back, where he remixed that stuff and updated his own shit, and that was awesome. But there's something cool about, just in a sentimental way as a fan, hearing the tracks recorded by Ryan in that era, you know, turn of the century, to right now, the Blasting Room taking those tracks and, you know, updating them to more the current propagandi sound because they've been using the blasting room now since like 2005 i think it's been a good while and so for me it was really cool to hear those two worlds combined nothing new recorded or anything like that but it's almost like a like a late stage collaboration or something that was never originally intended but i love it it brings a lot more punch and clarity to the drums as you know is their specialty at the blasting room but uh it's just fantastic we were listening to this on the way down to uh recording the dfs record uh ben polanski my bass player for dead fucking serious uh, he had it on his phone because my, my pre-order hadn't showed up yet and so we were listening to it in the van and just cranking that shit up because you know we were we were drawing on some propaganda for the uh the, the drum sessions that we were going down there to record for this record. And, um, man, 
It's just a fucking ripper. It's like hearing it for the first time. I've seen lots of people say like, oh, I've listened to this album a thousand times. My favorite album, you know, and I've never heard some of these little fills before. I've never heard some of the little guitar things before. It's like, I don't know. It's cool. Next up, I got a couple of live albums. First off, I have one of my favorite bands in recent years, The Interrupters from Hellcat Records. And they did a tour supporting Green Day a couple years back in Japan. And so this is live in Tokyo, and it's from their opening slot on that tour. So it's short and sweet. I think it's 30 or 40 minutes, but it's not in any way lacking. If anything, what's interesting to me, because I've seen them twice at club shows, and so them doing a stadium set, they're a very anthemic sing-along kind of band, but them doing a stadium set with Green Day and the way that Billy works the crowd, I feel like they were using a bit more of that. And to me, a live album, um, it's a little different when you're watching a video. Like they recently just a couple weeks ago, dropped the actual footage from this show on YouTube with kind of a documentary format. And you can watch it, and I think it works better when you're doing big crowd sing-alongs. You're like extending the song, you know, a bit, and, uh, and you're kind of dr- dragging out these sing-alongs. I think that works better in a visual setting because it's hard to capture that energy without being there. But seeing everything and the interaction and, and all that, I think, sells it better on video. That's really the only thing I could knock this because it sounds excellent. They've got a great set list and Amy's voice is just one of my absolute joys in music in the last few years. I mean, she just brings a smile to my face and that the way that Ska has a special way of doing, because for the most part, I listen to a lot of music that's sad music or angry music and Man, there's just uh, something about these guys that it turns my day around sometimes. It really does. I guess the only other thing I can think of now in terms of just, you know, the nature of a live album and not not being there for these big sing-alongs is they go into, I think it was She Got Arrested, which is my favorite song of theirs, one that I've covered actually on the Stolen Songs 4 record. And it's so slow. And I saw in the documentary, they, I guess when they started, Tim Armstrong kind of took him under his wing and was like, yo, you got to stop playing so fucking fast. So I get that that was a focus of theirs, but man, I just I love the energy of that song. Uh, speaking of fast, another live album from Mr. Bungle. I believe I talked about these guys last year. Not a band that I listened to. My friend Gabe had tried to get me to listen to them a million times. They're just too fucking weird for me. But... They disappeared for like 20 years and they came back with Dave Lombardo from Slayer, Scott Ian from Anthrax, and they had a whole thrash metal album that was fucking amazing that I guess was a re-recorded version of all their high school demos that they never put out. And it is just that fucking early Slayer vibe, man. It's just, it's amazing, fast, insane, kind of goofy and just oh my god whether you're super pissed or you even kind of want to laugh like it's a fantastic album and this 
was a live record that they recorded under lockdown for no audience. So occasionally you'll get a cameo of like, you know, a celebrity or a famous musician or something like as the only person in the crowd, like kind of shrugging their shoulders or like the one man clapping or something. So yeah, it's, it's a funny set, but it's fucking fantastic if you want to see these guys shred and they absolutely do. It's just called the night they came home. Cause I think it was just recorded home at their practice space or whatever, but it's fucking great. Highly recommend it if you're a metal fan. And another one that's a live album that I actually haven't heard yet, but I have to include this. Your family members might ask for some suggestions for uh, Christmas ideas. And so I put this on my list. I didn't buy it for myself because it came out in December. I thought, okay, maybe. So post-Christmas, I wound up ordering this for myself. But this is Green Day, one of my all-time favorite bands, the BBC Sessions. They went played BBC sets for Dookie, Insomniac, Nimrod, and Warning. And if you're an older fan like me from the 90s, I got into them on Insomniac. That's my favorite era of the band, and Nimrod in particular. Those songs are just, I'll never tire of them. That's probably my number two, number three favorite album of all time, any genre. And so... To see some of these deeper cuts from those records, because, you know, when you see a band live supporting a new album, they'll play songs that are from it that will not remain in the set list forever. And so that's why I like to see bands again and again is because you're always getting some shit that is only for that time in that moment. So I'm really excited to relive some early Green Day. I mean, so funny that that's considered early Green Day nowadays. But yeah, I just... Uh, very excited about the Green Day BBC Sessions, even though it is not yet in my mailbox. Uh, we're going to get into uh, some more new releases. These are original albums. Uh, I just have to shout out a couple friends of mine. First of all, Dark Time Sunshine dropped a new album called Lore. That is Henri Osborne and Zavala. And I watched the videos and I, I really, really enjoyed it. I did not actually get to hear the record yet, so... Uh, my bad on that, but from what I heard, the singles were fantastic, so uh, I, I got to catch up on that. Another friend of mine, Leo London, who's been on the show before, he dropped three EPs back-to-back, -back, I think since like Halloween, Curtains, Encore, and Born Again and Again. It seems like he is right now in this uh, really prolific creative mode where he's just cranking stuff out. And I've heard some people say to me, after years of people saying to me, you drop too much music, you should slow down. That like, nowadays with Spotify, you gotta drop more frequently. You gotta drop, you know, fewer songs and singles more often, right? And that's how you stay in the fucking algorithm or whatever. And so I think maybe that's what he's doing because this could have definitely been an album. I don't know why three EPs couldn't have just been, you know, paired to a, like a 12 song LP or something like that. But artists were having to get creative nowadays and, uh, and do this, but I'd, I'd recommend it, man. If I just listened to the third one born again and again the other day, cause I had heard the other two and God, the instrumentation on the first song and he's doing some like backup vocal production that he had never really done before. And 
yeah, he's just one of the best songwriters that I've ever known. And if you're into, I would say, like, kind of 60s production, acoustic stuff, like 60s rock, I don't really know. I always think of his music in terms of, like, Brian Wilson, Bob Dylan, that kind of shit, the classics, you know, but it makes you feel something. They're, they're sad guy songs, and I, I really, really love his stuff. So check out Leo London on his band camp, and I imagine it's probably streaming everywhere as well. Another guest of the show, Isid, dropped an album called Zen Repair, and we talked about that on a recent episode. It was an album that very much embodied kind of every little bit of his career, and was not only a step up in production in a way, because he's trying new things and experimenting, but also there was sort of a hunger in the rapping. And that was really what, what sold me, because he's always been a great producer. I mean, we did, he produced half of my first Sammy Warmhands record, you know, I mean, I've always loved his beats. But yeah, there was something about this one that, I could really tell he wanted to be more ambitious on the mic again. And so it's an exciting record. It speaks on the times. It's a great underground rap record that if you're hungry for new artists, I would highly recommend. You know, we talked a little bit about him uh, having some kind of uh, almost Aesop things going on sometimes. But on this record, you can hear the anxiety and the confusion and the like, what the fuck is this happening right now? And I think he expresses that through his lens, but in a very relatable way. Next up, one of my favorite bands of all time, two of them, really. The first is No Effects, single album. Apparently it was supposed to be a double album. They pared it down to this. And when Jason Livermore was on the show last season season five i believe he talked about this record uh was something he had just finished mixing so i was very excited about that you know they had uh dipped over to cameron webb for the previous album and to me there's just something about the blasting room fitting with certain bands you know with obviously descendants and all because that's bill stevenson's uh own projects but rise against good riddance no effects. There's just some bands that go perfectly with their sound. So I was happy to hear them come back to the blasting room. And then when I opened it up and I put it on, it was the slowest, longest, not the decline, but longest single song at the slowest tempo. And a band that's known for their speed, their crazy chord changes, and their sense of humor, right? This song had none of those things. And it drags on and on for five minutes, pretty much on one solid chord. I think at one point it goes to a second chord and then back. And it really, really turned me off, especially after Mike's solo record, Koki the Clown being... And I love sad songs. I've already said that here. And I'm a huge fan of Tony Sly's solo records, for example, which I think are some of the saddest records you know that actually bring me to tears at times when i listen to them and that koki the clown record was just um 
It was unbearably raw. It really was. And so that's kind of what I felt like with the first time I heard this single album because of that first song. However, upon repeat listens, and the rest of the album isn't like that. It, it more or less goes back into familiar no effects territory. However, if you pair this with the last album that I just talked about, First Ditch Effort, it ends with this great long song where he gets his daughter and Tony's daughter together, and it's called Generation Z, and it's basically a sort of apocalyptic tale of the end of humanity, right? And taken in that context, this opening song pretty much carries the torch from that because it's a very dystopian, like, shit is fucked up and not going to get better kind of song. It was just so, like, dour and slow, and it I've never heard a NoFX record do something like this. So it was a shock. It was not what I expected, and it took me a minute to appreciate it for what it is. I think maybe if it had been a closing track like Generation Z, I might have appreciated it more. But, um, yeah, the record's got some gems in there. I thought that... Actually, there was even a couple of lyrics on the record that I had used before in my other, I think in, um, I think one was a, a rap and one was DFS. I can't remember what they were off the top of my head, but I always think that stuff's interesting when you have kind of parallel thoughts with somebody that you grew up listening to, you know? Anyhow, no effects single album. It's definitely worth checking out. Just, um, you know, don't go in with those expectations that like, okay, we're going to have a ripping fast, no effects CD. Like you hear some of the shit Smelly does on the last song on the drums. And it's like, Ooh, yeah, this is what I was looking for. Right. And so there's still little moments of that, but uh, definitely a different approach. And I'm curious to hear what the other songs are or were, if we're ever going to hear them, they're pretty good with dropping seven inches and B side collections and stuff like that. So I imagine we'll get to hear it at some point. Now, the other longtime favorite band that I mentioned is Thrice. They have a new album called Horizons Slash East. And Thrice is a band that a lot of my friends and I grew up on, and we love them for being groundbreaking in the way they combined genres, and they were always unexpected. And the things they did with time signatures and dynamics and Melody was just unprecedented, really. I mean, they weren't a punk band. They weren't a hardcore band. They were just their own fucking genre. And we all tried to step up our game and be a little more like that in those ways. And since Beggars in 2006 or seven, they have more or less made one style of music. And that is just odd for a band like that. And, you know, it's similar to uh, AFI or something like that, right? Where they sort of lose the qualities that you fell in love with them for, but they're still making good records. You know, Beggars is one of my favorites, actually. But every album after that 
has sort of that same quality. Like what they had all these different styles and you never kind of knew what was going to happen in a given song. And then they did the alchemy index. It was four EPs where each one was its own style of music and they never did those mashup crazy arrangements, right? Well, after that, they never went back. And that's kind of what got a lot of us. Because I know a lot of friends who were diehard Thrice fans that don't even listen to them anymore. They don't. If I say, hey, have you heard the new Thrice album? No. Have you heard the one from five years ago? No. (laughs) It just, it doesn't have those qualities, right? I give you that preface because the last couple records, I hear it and I go, yeah, that's pretty good. And then I kind of forget it exists. Or I have an idea of what it was, but I never really got to know it that well. I never really gave it a chance. And whenever I put one on, like the last one, Palms, that was actually a much better record than my memory would give it credit for. And I feel similarly about this one in that Eddie is killing it, and the rhythm section is great. The bass tone is phenomenal. I saw a lot of comments about the bass tone, which is funny because it's almost like a thing you would bring up I mean, like, I'm an audio dude, right? And I'm a bass tone specifically. That's one of my specialties. But for, like, a lot of comments on the bass tone, it's like, hmm, maybe the songs aren't that exciting, though? I don't know. It's a very enjoyable album to put on, but I would not put it up with the rest of their catalog. And I think there's only been one record in the last 10 years that they made that I would put anywhere close to those first, you know, four albums that they made, four or five records that they made. So I think that, um, you know, the band's still doing good things, but they more or less sound like songs that Dustin Kensrue wrote and then just added everybody else in. Personally, I'd rather listen to an acoustic Dustin Kensrue album than a slower mid dynamic thrice album i miss the fire in this band and i miss the experimentation there are flourishes though of tepe's guitar playing that's like ooh, i haven't heard him do shit like that in a while that's cool but for the most part it just is modern thrice and that's cool it is what it is next up something totally different tony bennett and lady gaga love for sale now, this is a record I just got for Christmas. I got a couple here that I'm going to talk about. And I loved their last album. You know, I had Tony's duets too. And I believe that was the first time I saw him with Gaga. They did a song because he had, he had different singers come on and do tracks with him, all one-offs. And then they did this whole album together. I'm a big fan of, you know, Bobby Darin and Sinatra and even Michael Buble and... I really like that big band swing. I love Seth MacFarlane, you know, from from Family Guy. He does fantastic jazz standards. And that team-up record, Cheek to Cheek, was fucking great. I listened to it all the time. And I was very excited to hear them coming back. I believe that Tony is retiring after this. I think Tony Bennett is done because I've seen the footage of them together for this new record, and he's not all there mentally anymore he's like 95 or something like that and she would say like oh yeah if i have to talk to him i need to be very 
direct. I can't say, hey, do you want to do this song or do you want to do that song? He would get confused. But if you say, hey, do you want to do this song? He'd go, yeah, let's do it. And he can still perform like a motherfucker, okay? He hasn't aged at all. Like, I have some of his shit from the 70s. And 40 years later, he's still crushing it. Like, he's a fantastic singer. He's still in fine form at that age. And I have so much admiration for that. These people, and I've said this in my own lyrics, that, you know, I'm going to do it to death. And uh, this is who I am as a person, right? But, like, guys like this still putting out quality, like Tony Bennett, like Johnny Cash did, you know, like Clint Eastwood is still doing. You know, I have so much love for those people. Like George Carlin, my hero, did it to the end. And Tony, I, I still have so much love for this guy and for the love that he puts into his music. And their chemistry is amazing. I don't like Lady Gaga's pop music. I've never been a fan of that. But I love her doing this stuff. I loved her in A Star Is Born, and I have that soundtrack. I've listened to a great deal. I'd love to hear more of her jazz influence or acoustic kind of music as a solo artist because she sort of does it with Tony Bennett, does it with Bradley Cooper, but I'd really like to see her embrace that for herself because she's got a great voice and a lot of heart in her music, a lot of emotion. Next up... Almost done with the honorable mentions here. This might be a surprise, but some time ago, earlier this year, I was watching SNL, as my wife and I do every week, and the musical guests are, more often than not, how I know that I'm an old fuck, because I don't know any of these motherfuckers, and most often, I fucking can't stand their music. <laughs> I just am not down with the new styles, and I... To be fair, I was never really a fan of the big pop shit when I was a kid. I railed against it quite a bit. But there are exceptions once in a while, like Alessia Cara a few years back. She really surprised me with the content of her lyrics, and so I bought her records. This is another one, Olivia Rodrigo. And... I went to buy this CD like the week it came out and it was already sold out. I was like, oh shit. And I had seen her on SNL. I watched a couple of her music videos and I was very impressed. You know, the music was not some crazy overproduced bullshit, which a young artist on a major label almost always is victim to. These were songs with real emotions in which she is credited as the head writer. The whole record is her and one producer who's playing most of the instruments along with some from her. But I mean, it's just these two people making this record about perceivably one breakup, I believe, that she's going through. They have really witty lyrics, heartfelt lyrics. It's like it's a sad record, but it's also a defiant record it's got some pop punk in it i mean like the first song on it has distorted vocals in the chorus i'm like shit dude like you don't get a lot of that in like some 18 year old pop debut and so yeah these just feel like 
real songs, like timeless songs that could have come out in high school. Like today, uh, or last night, I was listening to this record again, as I'm listening to all of these records and preparing for this podcast. And there was a brief time, because my wife and I have been together since eighth grade. And in high school, we broke up for a little bit. And she goes, man, if this came out when we were in high school, I would have been singing all these songs about you. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I'm glad that that's what you think of when you hear this fucking record 20 years later or something. But I think that speaks to the timeless quality of this because it's different than like an Adele breakup record or something. Oh, shit. Yeah, I didn't include the Adele record because I haven't really heard it yet other than the single. But yeah, I think it's just a sort of timeless record of teenage angst and adolescent heartbreak and all of those things. And it's not overproduced, doesn't squeeze the life out of it, doesn't have a lot of, you know, fake bullshit. It's not like a pre-programmed record and it's not auto-tuned to death. It's just real instruments and real lyrics. And um, I'm really impressed by it. And I read recently there's a number one album in every country in the world this year. That's amazing, but I also feel a little sorry for her because I've always felt sorry for anyone, any young artist whose first album is that fucking big because what do you do next? Especially a record like this that was written sort of in a bottle about this one thing, this one time in your life. You know, I'm excited to hear what she has to say next. I hope that she sticks with this same producer because they clearly have a great chemistry together. And yeah, very impressed. You don't hear me talk a lot about new pop acts and, you know, fucking everybody I've mentioned is probably in their 40s or uh, Tony Bennett there in his 90s. <laughs> you know, uh, Olivia, she's she's killing it. You're probably like, yeah, I fucking know this. I have... I'm a human being who lives in the world. I've heard all these songs, but uh, I don't, and I hadn't. Next up, uh, an old friend of mine, DJ Abilities, Phonograph Phoenix. This is very hard. This deserves to be in the top 10, as some of these do. There's just only 10 slots, and uh, I think as hard as I can about how I want to place these, but fucking A, man. Abilities... His first solo record after all these years. Not a mixtape, not a collaborative record, but his first solo shit is fantastic. It's short and sweet. Every instrument sound was specifically chosen. Every track segue was specifically chosen. There's a lot of intention in the sequencing, in the sound design, in the samples that were chosen. You know, he talked about going through dozens of samples for each song to try to figure out what to scratch to tell the story he wanted to tell. And for an instrumental album, for all intents and purposes, it has a voice and it has his voice and it's autobiographical. And not only is the music, like it sounds fantastic and it has a great mix on it. And again, for someone who's new to playing his own instrumentation, Really, really, really well done. But it does tell a story, and that's the biggest achievement here, is that we have an instrumental record that carries themes throughout it, and the Phonograph Phoenix, you know, Out of the Bottomless Pit is the first sample on the record that opens the first song, 
And it's like, this dude is having a well-deserved comeback. I can't wait to hear what he's up to next. And I hope you guys will check it out if you're at all a fan of idea and abilities, of rhyme sayers, of turntablism, of underground hip-hop, even maybe a little bit of EDM because he's done some of that shit and there's some electronic influence on this record, but it still is a hip-hop record. And yeah, I couldn't recommend it enough. DJ Abilities, Phonograph Phoenix. Another one of my longtime favorite bands, Foo Fighters, dropped a new album. Or Foo Fighters, you know, as they made uh, Christopher Walken say it on SNL. Medicine at Midnight is the name of the album. This is a band who pops up with some shit that makes me think, have they lost their fucking minds? Like, are they out of ideas? The Foo Fighters doing a goddamn Bee Gees tribute, playing disco and shit, you know, some of these weird ass collaborations and uh and covers and stuff that they're doing i don't get this band sometimes anymore much like i said about thrice you know they're not the same band that they were when i fell in love with them in the mid 90s but this is probably the best record they've put out maybe since sonic highways or earlier um i think it's very well produced, which is something, because Wasting Light, which was an amazing album of theirs, kind of sounded like but intentionally, but but no less. And this record sounds amazing. There are songs on it that sound more like classic, like mid-2000s Foo Fighters, like could have come off of Echoes in Silence or In Your Honor or something from that era, like waiting on a war i thought it was a fantastic song and they're sort of you know settled into that late era foo fighters groove of you know they're more of a mid-tempo laid back kind of you know drum and bass driving the songs kind of band as opposed to big fiery guitar riffs driving these fast aggressive songs and then sucking all the you know, noise out of it and coming back to the softer dynamic. You know, they did that Nirvana thing a lot. Um, and they kind of got away from that for quite a while. But this record has a lot more heart and a lot more, I guess, lineage to their earlier stuff than I've felt in a while. I like Concrete and Gold. It was another one that sort of felt like, you know, some of these Thrice albums were... Oh, yeah, I forgot. I do like this when I put it on, but it's not one that stands out in my memory necessarily. So that does it for the honorable mentions. And there's a lot of great music on here. So if we stopped right now and you dove into some of those, you'd find a lot of things that you like. But from here on out, this is the ranked, the best that I fucking can. It's so hard. But the ranked top 10 albums of 2021, the best of the best. So first up is a new band to me. I've never listened to this band before. I have only in the last couple of years started getting into more and more metal. Usually the disconnect for me is the vocals because metal does a thing with aggressive vocals that's different than hardcore. And that is they tend to do these like 
throaty, like special effects sort of screams, as opposed to hardcore that to me is a more primal, emotional, aggressive sort of scream, right? You feel like when you listen to a Sick of It All record or an Agnostic Front record that like he's trying to get something off his chest, right? And with metal, I just fucking don't like the vocals a lot of times. It just is like, you know, or metal core and that, I don't know. There's just a lot there that I don't like. And so when a band breaks through that and they actually have not only good songwriting, not just like, look what I can do kind of playing, but like can actually craft a good song, has fucking great riffs and has good vocals. Man, that is the trifecta. That is so hard to find. And my friend Gabe told me to check out Gojira. And I know they're a fucking huge band. A lot of people know these guys. But for me, brand new stuff. And their new album, Fortitude, I picked it up and was just blown away. Some of the even simpler riffs on this album are like disposable heroes or something from Master of Puppets where like you hear it and you're like, oh yeah, that's cool. It's just one note. And then you try to play it. And the fucking right-hand technique on some of these songs is just mind-blowing. It's so impressive. And if you're a guitar guy, a riff guy, or fuck a drum guy, the drums are phenomenal on this record. And it was mixed by Andy Wallace, who has done everybody, obviously, fucking you know, Nirvana, Slayer, Avenged Sevenfold, Rancid, you name it. And just makes a a fantastic sounding record and there is really only one thing on this that i feel because when i make my top 10 i try to make sure that there's nothing in here that's at all skippable no songs that i want to move past right there's one song in the middle of this record i think it's called the chant where it's just this kind of loop over and over of this like and it's got this sort of like system of a down kind of vocal melody to my ear anyway that goes on and on and on but if i'm in the right mood for it i actually do enjoy it uh, it's just kind of a long loop um but man the heavy shit on this record is so fucking good i had to include it i put it on again last night and i was like oh this is no honorable mention <laughs> this has got to be in the list so number 10 is gojira 42 number nine we have one of the godfathers of pop punk this is the descendants ninth and walnut and what's crazy about this record is that in a sense it's from the 70s, and it's from like 2001. So it's 40 years old, and it's 20 years old, and it's brand new. And I'll tell you what I mean. These songs were written before Milo goes to college in like 1979, when the Descendants were a new band. And these eventually got phased out. They never got recorded. So 20 years ago, Bill Stevenson gets the original lineup back together, because for the longest time, it was Carl and Stefan in All and the Descendants. But this is back with Tony and Frank from the OG lineup of the band. And they re-recorded all these old songs that had never actually been done before on tape. And it sat there for fucking 20 years. And 
in the quarantine lockdown period of COVID, Milo finally recorded his vocals. And so that's what I mean when I say this record is 40 years old for the songwriting, 20 years old for the instrumentation, and brand new for the vocals and the post-production. So it's a really cool time capsule record that kind of has every era of this band in a way. And it's kind of great. It ends with a little almost like 60s, almost surf rock fucking song, which is a little out of place. But for the most part, I mean, there's 17 of these 18 tracks that just feel like classic Descendants songs that could have come off of any of their early records, in my opinion. And uh, it's highly enjoyable. This is just straight up punk rock done right. You know, I uh, can't, can't really ask for anything more from the Descendants. It was, uh, it was great shit. Highly recommended. Number eight, John Mayer, Sob Rock. This is a record that turned me off, point blank. Didn't like it because the single, and I fucking don't know why record labels do this, they will take the song that sounds least like the rest of the album and they'll make that the music video, the main single, whatever. I always had a distaste for John Mayer when he came out. And in, I think, 06, Continuum came out. And I think he won the Grammy for that record. He was working with Steve Jordan, Pino Palladino. You know, people were actually starting to take him seriously as a songwriter. And he also started the John Mayer Trio with those guys, where he is just shredding this live album, playing straight-up blues. And that is when he got my respect. Like, wow, this motherfucker can play. I was wrong about this guy. And then you hear those songs. You're like, man, like Gravity, these are fucking brilliant songs. And then you get Continuum, and it's like, oh, shit, yeah. I am fully down with this dude. I got to admit I was wrong. I still don't have those early records. I never bought them, but I've been on board ever since. And he released a single for his new album. I'm like, oh, cool. And I turned it on, and it's like 80s. Like, it looks like a shitty 80s video, and they're all dressed in goofy fucking pastels and shit. And the guitars are totally buried in synths. And I was just like, what the fuck? Why? Why? Why you got to ape a style when you already have such style? You know, like I just, I don't get that shit. I didn't like it. And it was sort of like that last Paramore record. I forget the name off the top of my head, but they dropped this very 80s fucking video. And I was like, oh, damn it. This is the new one. I was excited for this, you know. And then I heard that record all the way through. And I really liked it. And that was the same story here. My wife picked this up for me. She had been telling me, you're going to like it. It's good. Promise. She got this for me for Christmas. And I listened to it three times in the first 24 hours. It's so good. It's only one song that sounds like that. And in the context of the record, you're not looking at the fucking colors and the you know grainy, weird side letterbox video trying to make it look all 80s and shit, like, it's just a good song. Might be a little more keyboard heavy than I like, but, like, it doesn't sound like any of the rest of the record, really. 
They're just fucking great, heartfelt John Mayer songs. So if you're all a fan of that singer-songwriter shit, uh, go out and get this because uh, I don't want you to be misled like I was by the single because it does not embody the record. Like by track two, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I got it. I got it. This is exactly what I needed from this guy. All right, that's number eight. Number seven, and this was very hard because I'm going to talk about two punk bands right here that I've gone back and forth on which which record to rank higher. So this is uh, ultimately sort of a coin flip, but number seven is Rise Against Nowhere Generation. And Rise Against is a band I've loved for 20 years now, since their first record, The Unraveling. And after about five years, they sort of settled into a formula. And this was right around the time they started getting big on radio and a major label and all this stuff. And I wasn't like, oh, you know, fuck those guys, they sold out. But it's like, oh, those guys kind of just keep making the same record, you know. And, and so it wasn't until my mom was like, we run this cycle where my mom is into bands I used to like that are now big radio bands. And like, oh, have you heard the new fucking like offspring i'm like no nah, i don't really like them anymore i like their old shit and she's like well check this out it's pretty good i'm like oh okay yeah that actually isn't bad right she's like okay have you heard the new rise against i'm like ah just rise against this fucking you know and she played it for me for the first time not this one but a few years back and i'm hearing a song for the first time and like as it's about to go to the chorus i'm like okay now watch it the beat's gonna drop out and he's gonna sing and then the band comes in with this big halftime anthemic fucking thing like this is just what they do right i had just had their formula down pat and seeing them live again a few years back with thrice was a fantastic show and i rebought those those late albums that i skipped and uh there's some good good stuff in there primarily i would say get the b-sides record because for some reason, it seems like the B-Sides record took out all the harder, faster songs, the punkier shit, from those records. And it's really good. This album, Nowhere Generation, which, again, Jason Livermore talked about on his interview here on our show, if you want to go back and listen to that. This is the best Rise Against album in 10 or 15 years, in my opinion. This is sort of a return to form at times. There are songs on this record that feel like they could have come off of maybe not Revolutions, but Sufferer and the Witness or something like that from sort of their their classic anthemic hooky thing without being quite so formulaic. I think the only thing that gets me about this record is that it's only 11 songs, I think. But for punk songs, they're kind of long. It's like a lot of four-minute songs. Um, so I would maybe just jack up the, the pacing a little bit, trim the fat, maybe speed some things up a little bit. But it's a great sing-along record, and it's still got that fucking energy in the rhythm section in particular. Like, Joe is one of my favorite fucking bass players, and the just the rhythm section of this band has so much energy. It was nice to hear that again. And I feel like they're, they're fine songs. It's great songwriting. I love the lyrics on this record. You know, it's 
just speaking to alienation, isolation, and again, the anxiety of our times. And I think they're a great band to speak on that because they've long been a staple of uh, political commentary in this kind of music. So have to also shout out Jason's work and Bill's work because I think that this is maybe the best or one of the best sounding Blasting Room records that I've ever heard. And that's really saying something because I believe they set the bar time and time again. And they're my very favorite production house and, and my very favorite engineers. And this record sounds fucking phenomenal. So props to everybody involved on this. Uh, they, they really did a great job. Next up is another punk band that I had on the show this year. The Last Gang at number six. This is Noise, Noise, Noise. Now, this record threw me the fuck off because the interview occurred before the record came out. I had only heard track one, the lead single, Noise, Noise, Noise. And, you know, I, I told her when I heard the first one, I was like, wow, you know, these guys do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Like for a debut record, this is cool, but it piques my interest. Like where are they going to settle in? What will be their style? What will the second record sound like? And she talked about that lead single and how I was so thrown off by like, wow, this is kind of a slow reggae song. And even when it ramps up the dynamics really loud, it brings it back down a little bit into the chorus. And it just, it does some very interesting things, both sonically and dynamically that weren't present on their first record. And she talked about working with Cameron Webb and how he kind of rejected the original songs for this record. And they, they went back to the drawing board and then how she worked with Fat Mike in sort of honing what the style would be for this record and how he encouraged them to push more into the, the reggae influence and the, the little ska influence that's sort of there. And I, I wish that I heard this record cold because as a producer and you're like, fuck you, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just some asshole. But I've produced a lot of fucking records, a lot of fucking records. And so that's where my ear goes when I hear something, especially for the first time, is the production. I'm hearing not just sonically what they're doing on an engineering level, but the choices they're making in terms of arrangement. I'm looking at the structure of the song. I'm looking at the vocal melodies, the layering, the counter melody, all these other things. And knowing that Mike had pushed them to do that, I hear a song like We Fucked the World. And when it's a driving punk song, this fucking fantastic lyricism and, and it's really energetic. And then they'll go into this little halftime ska break for two bars or four bars or whatever it was, and then continue back into the uh, driving punk chorus. And that stuff just stuck out to me of like, ah, that wasn't written that way though, was it? Like those little things are 
thrown in there. And if you listen to the first record, which I have a lot of times, this sounds like a totally different band in a lot of ways. And so you go into a record sometimes with expectations, you know, like uh, I talked about on, fuck, I don't even know, one of these earlier records, that you have a sort of idea of what this band is going to do or who they are. And when they subvert those expectations, that is sometimes exciting and sometimes challenging as a listener, especially the first time. So the first couple times I'm listening to this record and knowing Yotam was involved, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a useless ID part. And, you know, it's like, hit him up. Hey, did you um, happen to, oh, yeah, yeah, that's my bridge. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, yeah, I wondered that. And, uh, you know, hearing little things that weren't present on the first record. Like there was so much going on in the vocals on this record, um, both with layering, effects, like secondary parts that weren't there. Like on the last record, she would sing the lead vocal and then she would kind of scream behind it quite a bit. Brenna Red, the lead singer here. And on this record... There was a lot going on, a lot of push and pull and back and forth and up and down dynamically in the vocals that is very engaging. It, it's almost like a, a critique that I laid on John Feldman's work of the recent like Blink and Goldfinger records. Like There was not a second where the music just plays a riff, where it just breathes for a second. There's always got to be a whoa or a na-na-na or a something there, right? And this is sort of that, but it's done right, if you know what I mean. It's not like feeling, oh, there's got to be an extra hook here. It's got to be a fucking, an, there's got to be another lead melody over this fucking riff. You know, the, it's very interesting. It always keeps you guessing. It is constantly changing and morphing, which is just a very interesting thing to do. I can't name another record that sounds like this. And at first it threw me off again, because what I'm hearing are elements of what Yo Tom has done for Useless ID, the chord changes that Mike does in No Effects, the harmony stuff that Cameron Webb was playing with on that last No Effects record with uh, First Ditch Effort. Like, there's, I'm hearing three producers over the top of this band in a way. And that's just the way that I'm fucking wired, right? But I listened to it a few times that first week. I took some time away from it, you know, because sometimes you just want to listen to it fresh again once you do know what you're going into. And a lot of my favorite bands, I did not like the first time I heard them. I've said this on the show before, but, you know, Bad Religion, for example, one of my very favorites to this day, didn't like them first time. Didn't like the Misfits. Didn't like so many bands the first time because that first impression is loaded. Maybe it has some baggage attached to it in some way or the hype or something like that. And so coming back to it later, I was able to really appreciate it more for what it is and hear the songs and the way that they are instead of trying to figure out like a chef going, hmm, mm, what did you put in this? I bet you used, you know, whatever, and trying to figure out the fucking recipe, you know. So I was less figuring out the recipe and more just enjoying the songs. And I, I, I came to really like it. I, I turned on my friend Evan to it. I bought it for my mom for Christmas. Uh, I, I really think this is a great record. And I'm naming this right now as my favorite punk album of the year. So whatever they did to 
change the formula and to step up their game, both musically, production-wise. Uh, it, it was a success. Um, you know, I might even say a triumph. It was very, very well done. It was like they skipped a step from the first record to this one. And I think that's what threw me. It's like, okay, explain this to me. <laughs> why, why is it so different, right? And so I'm overanalyzing it like I do. And I'm thinking about the, the producers and, and, you know, all the different techniques that I'm aware of. And, and okay, how did they arrive at this, right? But if you listen to the first record and then you listen to the second record, it's like, holy shit, guys, you did something special. So um, getting my own bullshit out of the way, this is a very, very enjoyable record that I've listened to a lot this year. And like I said, I've, I've tried to share it and turn on as many people as I can to it because uh, I think there's great content in the lyrics, um, you know, really bold songwriting you know, some risky choices. And I don't think there's a skippable song on the whole record. It's just very, very well done. So props to them, punk album of the year. This means we are changing genres a couple of times for the top five. So number five, I'm going to talk about a couple of different rap albums here, okay? Because I am an MC, and this is very important to me. One of my favorite MCs, who I've been blessed to work with and play some shows with, is from Fresno, California, He's called Fashion. And Fashion has been kind of all ups and downs of this industry. You know, he was the up and comer who dropped his album that made waves and got him as the, you know, freshman class of double XL on the cover, right? And when he was about giving up and he was back on the streets doing shit that he knew he shouldn't have been doing, he got a call from Nas, and Nas signed him to Mass Appeal, and he made a follow-up record that was fucking extraordinary, and, you know, uh, it, it was it was great to watch him rise back up again, and, you know, working with Nas and Busta Rhymes, and, you know, just, just really crushing it, right, and then he went away for a while, and, you know, he dropped a little EP a few years back, and this is his first proper album in quite a few years, it's called All Hail the King. And here's what I love about this record. It's nine songs. It's brilliant production. One producer the whole way through. And it's hungry. It's back to reclaim the throne, you know? And... Yeah, it's just short and sweet and full of energy. It's just energy to the fucking brim. And I love this guy in terms of his voice, his lyricism, like whether it's storytelling and, you know, some follow your dreams shit, like his first record, Boy Meets World, or whether it's just some badass rapper shit, like some of his early mixtapes mix when... You know, like F-A-S-H-A-W-N was one of his first songs where he's just rapping every letter of the alphabet that's in his name. And, you know, he, he's really versatile. He's he, somebody who um, I think is very underrated. And this is a comeback record that could stand against any of his previous work, if not 
better. I mean, he sounds like that young 20-year-old dude again. And it's it's with more experience, more mic technique, you know, more mic control. It's just, um, yeah, this is a dude who's been, like I said, through all levels of this industry and is still out there killing it and doing it on his own terms, making the records he wants to make. And I respect it. I love it. This album has a lot of replay value because you can just fucking put it on and it's fun. It'll get you hyped up and it's not too long. It's not too like dense and wordy. Going to make you, you know, fucking uh, critically think. You can just like, all right, I want to start my day with someone with some fucking energy, you know. Bam. All hail the king. It's a great record by one of my favorites, Fashion. That's number five. Number four is 13. T-H-1-R-T-3-E-N, 13. This is a new group by Pharaoh Munch. And for all intents and purposes, it's basically a Pharaoh Munch record. A Magnificent Day for an Exorcism. This record is everything that I love about Pharaoh in terms of his brilliant, challenging, unexpected patterns are like casual from hieroglyphics I've talked about or illogic in the way that you would have to fucking rewind that shit because, oh my God, that line, how did you think of that? How would you have put that rhythm over this groove? How would you have put those fucking words together that no one has ever thought of before? And so... When I listen to Pharaoh Munch, I am always inspired. I'm always engaged. I'm always surprised by the next line that's going to come, the next verse, the next flow. He's doing some crazy fucking double time shit that I've never even heard him do on this record. And with no less of the... You know, I talk to Casual about this on the podcast where when people do that, they'll add these little words that, you know, that, that lend themselves to that type of flow where you're not saying shit, right? That he's still doing it with no less complexity and sincerity in the lyrics, but switching his whole technique in a way that just blew my mind. I mean, I'm driving around in the van listen to this fucking rewinding, like, oh my God. And it's a real hope of mine to have Pharaoh on the show. I'm going to say it right here. I have talked to him. I have talked to his, his agent and uh, we're trying to make that happen. So uh, Pharaoh, if anybody ever gets this back to you, I want to make this happen. We'll get you on 2022. So 13, A Magnificent Day for an Exorcism. And again, I want to go back to 13 being a group because I was just perusing a couple reviews to see what other people thought about this. And, and the first one that was on there was Pitchfork. And Pitchfork, to me, is like the fucking snotty, <laughs> condescending record store guy. You know, the dickhead that make you feel bad for buying the record you wanted to make, that you wanted to listen to. And... When I was reading it, you know, it was talking about like the most insufferable subgenre of rap, the fucking lyrical miracle, like so dense that you 
the lyrics go over your head. You can't understand what you're talking about. You know, the Pharaoh was a pioneer of that with organized confusion. I'm like, so first off, like, why are you the one reviewing this record? Like, if you don't like this dude in this style of music, what do you have to bring to the table? What is your fucking insight, right? And they start talking about, how, yeah, it's got these fucking rock grooves in the background and the guitar is mixed way too loud and all this shit that just feels like a fucking, you know, they even threw in Kid Rock at one point. I'm like, are you kidding? Because if you listen to this record, I would liken it more to, I think it was called 13 Reasons to Die or something that I might, fuck, that's a Netflix show, isn't it? There was a Ghostface Killer album with Adrian Young, I believe was his name. He was the drummer and the producer. And I saw that show live and it was fucking phenomenal. And it's live instrumentation, but produced in a masterful way to sound like sampled records. And that is what 13 does extraordinarily well. There are some songs where they want it to feel like a band, but for the most part, you wouldn't know unless they fucking told you that these gritty-ass drum loops were not just ripped off some old record. You know, the sonic palette of these songs are not unlike any sample-based, grimy, boom-bap shit that you would expect, okay? And so I think that is a very unfair criticism if you've ever heard that about 13 as opposed to a Pharaoh record because this is very much a Pharaoh record and props to the band and the production team for pulling this off in a way that feels authentically hip-hop and not some canned rap rock thing. If anything, if you listen to his record War, We Are Renegades, that has more rock influence than 13, which is supposedly Pharrell Monch fronting a fucking rock band. So just had to say my piece on that. This is done very, very well. This is hip hop. This is beats and rhymes and extraordinary lyricism. So check out A Magnificent Day for an Exorcism. That's number four. Number three, this is my rap album of the year. These last three records at certain points through the year have all claimed that spot for me. They've all been up and down, and so I, I don't mean to put one thing over another, but I listened to everything again yesterday in compiling this list, and this record brought me to tears at one point. Gift of Gab, R.I.P., it's called Finding Inspiration Somehow. Now, Pharaoh is one of the best to ever do it. This is true. This is undisputed. Gift of Gab is one of the best to ever do it. And I didn't know him well, but we talked a lot on the phone and on text when we did that song together. You know, we played a show together. We filmed a music video, which to this day I, I haven't released because I was, I was planning to release it the week that we found out that he died. And so I put it back on the shelf. We had a great time. We went to lunch at the train station before he was uh, headed home. 
you know, and we had talked about his health. I knew he was in, in poor health um, because he asked me to go on tour with him. And I was like, wow, that would be amazing because he knew that I had the van, you know, that I had my booking agent, that I had been out there grinding. And he showed me so much respect and kindness as one of the all-time greats, right? And we met in fucked up circumstance that uh, neither of us was at fault for, but he did me a massive solid when we first met and showed me he's a real dude. Uh, like if you listen back to the show, I don't know, probably three or four years ago, that was when I interviewed him. We had just begun that process. We had just kind of met at that point. And so after the music video and we're, and we're, we're having lunch together, he's like, yeah, man, you and me should go out. We should, we should really do that. I think it would be fun. And so we were talking about what cities to hit and how we would plan it because he had to have kidney dialysis Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And so we had to plan the tour around the healthcare opportunities, basically, for him to get treatment um, on the road. And he was doing that. He was out there on the road for years like that. He would go, he would get his fucking treatment, however many hours that would take, and then he'd move to the next town and play a fucking show. That is insane. That is dedication to the craft. When I interviewed him, he had a solo record, a book, a Black Alicious record, and a shitload of B-sides that hadn't even come out yet that he was all telling me about with such excitement. Like, this dude was going through the kind of... He was seeing hard times that would cripple most of us, that would zap our creative energy our inspiration and our drive. And he did not see that as an obstacle. He was still just as hungry as ever. And the reason that that tour didn't happen, because I told him, yeah, man, I'm, I'm going to take the next little while and focus on my band and getting this, this record out and getting us out there. And of course we did that and then the fucking pandemic happened, you know, six months later or something and it never happened. And I think I talked to him once or twice during the pandemic, just seeing how he was doing and it never happened. But my point here is that this record, if you listen to it, it came out after he died. I believe this September or October is when it came out. And it's still just as vital, as potent. His commentary is still just as sincere and wise as those Blackalicious classics that we all know and love. And it's still positive. You know, we talked about like one of my favorite records, The Mighty Underdogs. And you talk about, yeah, everyone's just, you know, I could fucking 
I got more guns than you. I kill more people than you, you know, and like trying to be tough, trying to be hard. And he's like, man, I just, I just never, never got that destructive shit. You know, we were like, okay, well, how far can we push our imagination? Right. How come, how far can we, can we push the ideas and the lyricism, you know? And that was something that he did through and through from the very beginning to the very end. You know, if you listen to this record, he's talking about how, you know, he never understood the gang shit coming out of some of these same areas. And yet, you know, he responded with love and understanding, you know, and I don't want to try to paraphrase or sum up any of the profundity on this record because there is a lot. And there's some great just fucking bar out lyricism tracks. And particularly in the bonus EP, Rejoice Rappers Are Rapping Again, that had that, that big song with Afro and Ari the Rugged Man that's it's on the CD as a bonus track, which I loved, or, or like, you know, five or six bonus tracks, which is fantastic. But yesterday I listened to, you know, just the album itself and I cut it before those because I just wanted to take this in as his final statement and i do hope that we get that black alicious record that he was talking about that it was finished i don't know or that we get to read his book you know i don't know how far those things were you know a couple years after our conversation by the point that he passed but just like i said about tony bennett to be delivering shit on this level in that sort of health condition is so impressive but he's not just a fucking mouthpiece you know he is still that intellectually curious and thought-provoking and you know his lyrical dexterity the the fucking patterns that this dude is using so expertly they're still so rapid fire so dense so full of love and life and excitement for the craft of rhyme writing and so all three of these MCs that I just talked about Fashion, Pharaoh Monch and Gift of Gab these are people who inspire me to write and to write better and to have him make this final effort on this level is something that um, I, I deeply I deeply respect R.I.P. to Tim Parker the gift to gab when i say that this record brought a tear to my eye you know and and gave me a moment of pause if you sit down and really listen to this record and the things that he's saying i think you'll understand so that's my rap record of the year finding inspiration somehow as my number three record of the year the gift to gab Number two, uh, here's uh, another artist that I've listened to for about 15 years. Brandy Carlisle is a singer-songwriter who you may be familiar with just because she rose in popularity in the last couple of years, her, her last album. She finally uh, got herself a Grammy for it. And it was funny because it was one of those where my wife and I are like, hmm, 
this new record is not really not really hitting the spot. I don't know. And then that's the one that gets all the acclaim. <laughs> and so I don't know how these things work. Maybe she was just getting her due. But Brandy is a phenomenal singer, and she is the the front woman, so to speak. But it really is a trio. Phil and Tim Hanseroth are twins, much like the uh, Bonovas in uh, The Interrupters, who provide the, the musical backdrop, and they are co-songwriters for Brandy Carlisle. And this record, In These Silent Days, really captures the, um, the essence of a Brandy Carlisle show because seeing her back in the day, you know, you could hear a pin drop, you know, before the van comes back in. I mean, it was just the most silent. We were captivated, breathless, waiting for the next word to fall from her lips. She just has an angelic voice, as do the twins on their astonishing three-part harmonies that they do together. And this record is just, it, it felt like a return to form. You know, it's one of those, like, someone who's deviated, they've tried this, they've tried that, and now they come back, they do the thing that they're best at, and they do it the best they ever did it. You know, I don't know if this is my favorite record of hers or if this is her best record. I don't know. But I tell you this, it's the only one I've listened to this year since it came out because it is just that good. And I was very fortunate. I just happened to be sitting there bored on Facebook when she posted, hey, I just signed a whole bunch of these. If you pre-order right now, you get signed copies for no extra charge. And so I pre-ordered my CD. It was signed. You know, cost me fucking 12 bucks or whatever, just like a regular uh, copy would. And uh, I was very happy to get that. Again, as someone I've, I've listened to and followed for a very long time and whose music has meant a lot to me, you can hear some of the influences in this album. You know, like there's, there's a song towards the end of the record that to me sounds like self-titled Elton John, like the 70s Elton John shit, you know, the singer-songwriter shit. And that's the kind of like just grounded sincerity, I guess, that she brings to these songs. So I'm not going to try to describe it too much because I, I think I would fail to do so. But Brandy Carlisle, In These Silent Days, that is my number two. It's a beautiful album. And if you're at all into singer-songwriters, I, I really hope that you check her out. She's one of the best doing it. My number one album of the year, this did not come without great deliberation. Because like I said, I mean, really any of these albums in my top 10, you know, while you're listening to it, you're going, man, this is fucking great. Whether it's a sad record like John Mayer, or whether it's a happy record. Another record that really strikes a nerve with the people like myself who are feeling so much anxiety and worry about the future and everything going on in the world that this record, I felt, said it the best. Chesky. This guitar was stolen 
along with Years of Our Lives. It's my number one album of the year. This might be a surprise. It might not. I mentioned on the Chesky episode, which was our last interview, that 2020 BC was the song of the year. I said it over and over again. I've been saying it to anybody who will listen, frankly. I think that the lyrics speak to me in a way that no one else does. And I feel an understanding, a sort of, this guy gets how I feel when you listen to it. And also sort of a, man, I wish I thought of that line, you know, as a, as a writer, that friendly competition. And, and it's presented in a beautiful way, you know. When I say you may be surprised, it's because this is an album that does not yet exist in a physical form. And I am the physical media guy, you know, that's something that I've always championed. If you just put something on, you know, streaming, like, well, I mentioned Fashion. He dropped the Mana EP a few years ago, only on streaming. I still haven't heard it. And he's one of my favorite artists because I can't buy it. I can't, you know, I just can't get it because I don't use those services. I don't believe in them. And here's a record that I bought digitally on Bandcamp. And um, I burned a copy. <laughs> and uh, I just can't stop listening to it. Um, it's beautifully executed. I mean, the guitar playing alone is insane. The melodies, the vocal melodies here are his best. This is at once a, a very well-produced and almost underproduced record in that it has sort of a live rough quality to it in a way, but it also has rich instrumentation, you know, so many different sounds that uh, I've never used on a record before, I tell you that much, that also brought me back to, you know, Beatles and Beach Boys and, you know, some of those ambitious 60s records that were just experimenting and trying to come up with this magic combination of sounds, right? And you'll have him double time rapping over these just beautiful, serene backdrops, right? And then you'll have him actually more gently singing over these complicated guitar patterns that I've seen this dude play this kind of shit live and it it's so impressive, you know, and I'm 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 really grateful to call him a friend, you know. He's he's put out a lot of great music on the fake four label. A lot of artists that I've got to work with or play shows with. And, you know, I, I think he's been actually when he was in prison of a number of years ago, shit, that was almost 10 years ago. I think I, I wrote him a letter and I just said that, you know, I hope you know everything that, that you've done for this community 
you know, if you trace back and connect the dots, the web of the underground rap scene and how much that he has singularly done through Fake Four. And I know it's not only him. I know my dude Jeep works for them. I know Mo Nichols and some of these other people, you know, help out behind the scenes. But like, it's just so impressive to see a dude who has helped so many other people in the middle of this album trilogy that sort of got delayed. He dropped the two records as we talk about on the interview. And then the third one got held up to come with something this powerful, this potent, this timely, and drop a career best is a great thing. And I'm glad that people are taking notice. Because again, all the grinding that he's done, not just for himself like so many of us have done, but for others, makes me want to celebrate this victory even more. And I hope that that's clear and that you can understand what I'm, what I'm trying to say here. His talent as a rapper, it's unmatched. You know, the insanely fast patterns with the political commentary or the intense raw vulnerability, right, is something that doesn't exist together. Those types of things are mutually exclusive for the most part. You don't get that kind of insane chopper shit with that much heart, that much substance behind it. And you don't get someone who is putting their blood, sweat, and tears into putting on all these other artists, making sure that they have a platform to be heard and yet still can surprise us with the time and energy. Again, he's talking months that go into writing a single song just to have this thing conceptualized, but to actually bring it to life in the way that it deserves. Taking the time to do that right and then giving it back to the fans as a free album. This is an accomplishment that... I can try to quantify, but I hope that you listen to these songs and that they mean as much to you as they do to me. There are songs about this pandemic and this crazy purgatory that we've been stuck within. And there are songs about losing loved ones that rings so true and I think no matter what on this record every song touches on something that is so human and so primal that I can't do it the justice so what I'm going to do is I'm going to end this show I appreciate you guys listening this is the top 10 albums of 2021 I'm going to end this episode with the exact way that I ended the last episode because I think it's that good. This is from the number one album of the year. This guitar was stolen along with Years of Our Lives. This is Chesky. The song is called 2020 BC.
understand everything Hasn't lived enough to know it's impossible to come close Seek the good in humanity, right? Even if it's a struggle most times This hate natural love we train to fight like some pit bulls We've been locking jaws into each other's backs well before Christ Is that what it takes to survive? Who taught us how to survive? pandemics arrived Many heartbroken bats working for some charismatic demigods Who raise minimum wages to build company loyalty Watch their employees die left and right Bosses' profits grew up for lost lives As they smiled for media commending philanthropy We've been glorifying wealth and greed and sociopathy It was packaged and sold to us as the American dream Splintered working class people to weaken our communities Fed us our siblings meat and convinced us that it was healthy Then told us that we were born free History manipulated by mythology Craving love and attention 
Satisfaction's hardly met And it was true The world we knew Has changed and it's strange To face what's new So each generation Complains of the youth Saying things were much better then Please show more proof Superstition, Gift of Gab. My name is Sammy Warmhands, and these are just a few of the iconic voices featured on my double album, Figures of Speech, available now at take92.com and strangefamous.com. Do you miss live music and going on tour? Check out my new book, How to Ruin Your Life, The Daily Grind of a DIY Tour. The book chronicles nearly a decade of underground tours with artists like DJ Abilities and Christoph Crane. 
With a foreword by Carnage the Executioner, this book is a must-have for rap fans who want to peek behind the scenes. The book is available now at Take92.com and StrangeFamous.com. For even more behind-the-scenes content, subscribe to the Take92 podcast for interviews with artists from Sage Francis to Jello Biafra. This is Sammy Warmhands from Crush Kill Recordings and Take92 Music.